Welcome to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the region. We work at the intersection of race, economy, political power, gender, and the structures of oppression at work within us individually, within our organization, and within the community. We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, expanding the public sphere, and creating structural racial equity. Today, our guest is Latrell Stanton, an organizer with Expo St. Louis, also known as Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing. And today we're going to talk about recent actions at the City Justice Center here in St. Louis. So welcome, Latrell, and thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Kevin, for having me. I appreciate it. So I guess give us a little bit of a background. Uh, the city, uh, St. Louis City Justice Center has been in the news recently and even nationally after men who were detained there took over portions of the facility on February 6th. So give us some details about what happened and why. Okay, well, it was on the morning last Saturday where uh, basically I received notice that there was a resistance occurring at the St. Louis Justice Center downtown. Mm, I immediately went down there uh, to find that the police had blocked up the streets and uh, they had been uh, fire engines and police cars surrounding the Justice Center, which is right across the street from City Hall. Um, some uh, detainees from the Justice Center had broken out a section of windows. I think it was on the fourth floor where they uh, held out signs and protest in support of um, detainees before them that had protested in, uh, in light of uh, mistreatment that has been done by the uh, Justice Center. Um, so this has, was the third protest of such at the Justice Center. Um, Expo St. Louis received correspondence um, after the second protest. And so the uh, you know, the, the, the narrative that this is some type of random act is, is completely untrue, so. Yeah, that seems to be the narrative that the city wants to put out right now, that it was one individual who started a fight and it got out of control as opposed to connecting the dots with the, the protests in December and January. So what, take us back to December and January. What were those, those protests about? Well, December uh, protests that we were explained to us in detail, basically around 10 a.m., um, Mr. Bay and about over 50 other individuals stood in solidarity outside of their cells in peaceful protests. And um, they wanted to express grievances, basically about, you know, non-running water, um, living without heat, and having no access to social distancing. And basically the protests were met with tear gas and water holes, and they were actually put face down in the contaminated water, handcuffed. And a lot of those uh, detainees were transferred to the condemned workhouse facility, you know, which is something else that we have to focus on because I really don't feel like this story is complete when you're talking about the Justice Center unless you actually talk about the workhouse as well. So 
connect what happened in February with what happened in the other two protests. Um, why, why did this happen uh, in, in February? Well, basically, um, after they had been going through the process for, you know, anywhere from four to six months where they were filing grievances, grievances about food, about being housed with sick people, about the water not running, um, <clears throat> just about different issues that they felt that were not being addressed. And so for a good period of time, they went through the proper channels, expressed grievances and filed complaints and were not, you know, given given they feel like really a fair hearing as far as what was going on. Um, so they organized, you know, the, the, the thoughts that this was some type of random act, you know, as ex-incarcerated people, we understand that it's very difficult to get detainees inside of a prison to organize in large numbers. <clears throat> you may have your clicker, click of five or six people, but to organize any actions for anyone over, for anything over 10 people is really tough in any type of prison or jail setting. So they did, you know, they did that in the, on December 29th, they protested. And like I said, they were met with tear gas and they were sent to the hole. Well, the, the, the people who spoke out on the, in February were not the same people that protested on the 29th. You know, they actually held signs saying free the 57 because the 57 people that protested on December 29th had been locked in a hole or sent to the even worse workhouse. So you have to really understand that in order for over 100 detainees to band together, they're risking retaliation. They're risking extended periods of time and extra charges in order to do this. They know that it's not going to end with them being released. They know that the end for them is going to be being locked up even deeper in even darker places for a longer period of time. So the courage that they had to take in order to bust out those windows, because if it was just, you know, like the media is framing it, if it was just a prison riot, they would have saw no need to bust out the windows to get attention. Um, they would they would have saw no need for that. Prison riots happen everywhere, and there's no need to try to make a connection with the outside world. This was truly a protest in which they were trying to get themselves seen and heard by the public. Okay, excellent. And talk a little bit more about the. I, I think what you said is 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 uh, a great point that. It, to do this, they, they know what the consequences are going to be so that that conditions inside the jail facility were bad enough that it was worth risking whatever comes afterwards. And so there's there's one, the additional charges that that will be made, but there's also retaliation. What what happens when the, there's there's a retaliation that takes place against folks inside? Well, you know, <laughs> anyone who has been in the justice system can understand how retaliation can work. It can be anything from 
you know, receiving the, the, the COVID cell, anything from them not allowing you to shower, from them, you know, shoving your food tray through the hole to where it falls on the ground so you actually are not eating or to them even, you know, messing with your food, ignoring your medical complaints, anything that they feel that they can do because they're not accountable to anyone. You know, and it goes on a person-by-person basis. So anytime they feel like you are making their job harder, anytime they feel like that you are being a nuisance to them, they have complete and total control over what you eat, if you drink water, whether or not you have clean clothes or clean bed clothes, down to anything to read, any type of exercise of any sort, as far as getting out of the cell goes. So, you know, retaliation, it happens every day for all types of reasons, even very small reasons, even, you know, personal reasons between just one person and the CEO. So that happens every day. So they're, they're you know, they're, they're used to that. So, you know, retaliation is something that, that you always have to deal with, you know, if you're in the criminal justice system. So let's talk a little bit about what the stated purpose of the CJC is. If someone is housed at the City Justice Center, what is their legal status? Where are they at within the the criminal justice process? The people at the CJC have not been convicted of any crimes. Um, They're they're housed there and held there, pending trial, if they're not able to make bail or bond. And so that's another distinction to be made is that these are not convicted criminals. These are detainees. So that's where they are in the legal process. They have not yet received trial and un- unable to make bail or bond. And, and that's sort of a, a direct contradiction with some statements coming from the city that, that specifically state these are violent offenders when no one there has been convicted of anything. And it just comes down to buzzwords. I mean, you know, in not just St. Louis and not just Missouri, but prisons across the country, you know, people, uh, representatives for these facilities, whether they be the warden, you know, or the, all the way up to the governor, just a public safety uh, manager, you know, they've learned that if they just come out and they simply can discredit uh, detainees' voices by labeling them as violent, as criminal, I would go so far as to even doubt the origin story of, you know, one person overpowering the guard and then letting everybody out and the guard gets away. And I wouldn't even trust that story, to be honest with you. That makes sense. There, there do seem to be some inconsistencies in that there were what was uh, two different areas of that floor that that uh, uh, took action at the same time? Right, and it was, a, it was two different areas and it was coordinated, you know, you know but that's, that's, the, that's really the issue is that without transparency, without civilian oversight, um, they can pretty much tell any story that they can make up out of the air without any type of um, cooperation, without any type of evidence showing exactly what happened. And the follow-up or, or what a, a, a group of, of advocates has been asking for is 
the ability to inspect the CJC uh, to, to investigate and find out what is going on. And they've recently been denied that by the city. Right. I mean, that's, those are just silly politics. One of the things that, you know, keeps St. Louis where it is. Everyone is basically wants to protect themselves, protect their jobs and protect their names. And, you know, they're, they're not allowing real civilian oversight to these detainees. And at the end of the day, that just might be something that we have to handle at the ballot box. Because there's been jail tours before. You give them enough time and they'll actually address the problems and fix the problems they, they could have addressed months ago. They'll, they'll, they'll take all of the detainees that basically uh, resisted and they'll move them either different wings or different floors or even solitary confinement or even move them to the workhouse. They'll get some fresh ones who wasn't there, didn't know what happened, and not on the verge of resisting. And then they'll, they'll parade everybody through and it'll just be a dog and pony show. So the men living in the CJC are awaiting trial. And what kind of weights are they looking at a lot of times? How long are, are, are men there? I've heard you know stories about people being held before trial up to six years. Hmm. I know personally when I was held, which was not in uh, was not in CJC, but uh, when I was held before my trial, it was eighteen months, and there was people that was in uh, in the same wing as me that was held before that trial for two, three years, and you know what will happen is you, you know, as a detainee, will be in a hurry to go to trial. Um, but of course, the way the uh, the legal system is and the uh, public defender's office is backed up, every time that you come up for trial, it gets pushed back, months back. And so you can never even, as a detainee, you can never really sure that you can see the light of day. Because even if you have a trial date that's coming up in a few months that you think might decide, you know, your outcome if you're trying to fight for your freedom, most of the time when your court date comes up, it's going to get pushed back months and months and months and months. So it's, it's, it's horrible on the mind if you're really uh, focused on fighting your case and, and, and want to see your day in court. So that means that we've got a group of men who are essentially held indefinitely without a conviction, um, pretty much held because they cannot post bail. So it becomes a matter of, of economics um, as well. Um, so they're stuck in this, this, this place and they're facing um, bad conditions, bad treatment, and then on top of that, the COVID-19 pandemic. So we have men who have been not been convicted of anything uh, in extended stay facing a health crisis that they shouldn't have to face, correct? That is correct. And it's my opinion that the, the posture of you know, the city 
as well as the governor for not only uh, city jails, but prisons across Missouri has added to the stress and just the, the overall suffering of detainees and inmates. They, since the pandemic, you know, they have stopped visits, which is another, you know, mentally challenged thing to not be able to visit, uh, get visits from your loved ones. And they have basically pushed inmates as well as detainees to the bottom of the list as far as receiving the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, as I understand it, the CDC protocols state that in order for you to protect yourself from the uh, COVID-19 virus, you need to have PPE with your mask. You need to be able to wash your hands often and you need to be able to socially distance. And these men cannot socially distance. They're unable to, it's, it's, it's not something that they can do. Therefore, I feel like that they should be given access to the COVID vaccine as early as possible. If they want access to it and they want to take it, then they can take it. If they don't, then they don't. But it's obviously the state is responsible for housing and caring for these state detainees, especially because they haven't been convicted of a crime and they should have made the COVID vaccine necessary to them while it's vaccines that's being wasted all across the state. Now we talked a little bit about that after these events have taken place, both in, in December and January, and now this one in February, that men that participated were moved back to the St. Louis Minimum Security Institution, also known as the workhouse. So let's remind our listeners what the conditions of the workhouse are like. The workhouse is notorious for deplorable conditions. Um, it's just, you know, an open bay area, which is, which is just infested with rodents and the sewage backs up. And, you know, I myself personally have never been in the workhouse, but it is just notorious for fights and thievery and corruption from the staff as well. It is truly a part of the two, what I call a two jail system. It's, it's one of the things that they use to deter people that's in CJC. And they tell them, you know, if you if you don't act right, we're going to send you to the workhouse. The workhouse has been condemned um, when it's hot. Uh, temperatures rose up over 100 degrees to where the, the, the detainees in the workhouse had to call out to the outside for help. And people had to come in and give them air conditions. And just to show you the posture that city officials have against them. When they did get those air conditions, they turned them up so high to where they froze them, froze them out. <laughs> you know, that just shows you the posture that people have towards justice involved people. And that's really what Expo is here to, uh, to fight against. Like we understand that there's a justice system. We understand that there's a justice process, but we fight against the notion that that gives officials, COs, um, license 
to treat human beings however they want to and to be unjustifiably cruel to detainees and to inmates. So I think that the uh, minimum security institution, otherwise known as the workhouse, is a picture example of what it is to have inhumane conditions and be unjustifiably cruel to inmates. My brother died in the workhouse. My brother died in the workhouse. You know, he was in an assault. They took him to prison and he had been stabbed and he had been patched up by uh, the nurses at a hospital and then transferred to the workhouse. And later on that night, he called for help because he knew it was something that was wrong with him. And they ignored his calls until they found him in the morning dead on the floor. And that's just one of many stories about the workhouse. You know, it's no guarantee that you can walk into these facilities and walk out alive. And, and that shouldn't be right if you haven't been sentenced to death. And, you know, I say that, but death penalty isn't even right. So, I, Latrell, my heart goes out to you. I'm sorry for your loss. And I, I did not know that about your brother. My brother, Roland Pullum, I think he died in uh, sometime around 2009. Uh, 2011, maybe. I'm, I'm terrible with dates, but yeah, my brother, he actually died in the workhouse uh, from a wound that was apparently fixed up. Okay. And as we're recording this, uh, we're going through a winter weather advisory. The temperatures are dropping to or below zero. Um, and my understanding, the heating in that facility is no better than the air conditioning that that extreme colds are extreme cold is going to be a problem also for these men yes um, extreme cold just extreme exposure to the elements in general a lack of dry clothing a lack of any type of thermals to protect themselves um it's just an overall um posture of out of sight out of mind you're in this jail you must have done something Whatever you've done, you deserve this. And basically, they, they want the detainees to take accountability for something they haven't been convicted of, but they don't take any accountability for their job, which is to uphold the facilities that they work at. So let's bring it back around to uh, the role of Expo. Um, th- this is a, a good example of why an organization like Expo is necessary. Um, so tell us in your words why, uh, first of all, it's important for uh, the ex-incarcerated to organize and, and then also for uh, to have that, that greater support of the surrounding community f- from an organization like MCU. Why is it important for us to, to stand up at this point? It's very important for an organization like Expo to exist because we know what it's like. We know what happens when the cameras leave and the doors locked. We know what it's like to be at the mercy of someone else's decency. Um, I myself was um, diagnosed with diabetes when I entered the criminal justice system but it was a misdiagnosis, which I was aware, unaware of. 
and they kept giving me medication for diabetes. Well, in most prisons or jails, they stop. The last meal you get is dinner, which is at about five o'clock between five and six. Every night at around eight, my sugar would drastically drop because I actually was not hyperglycemic. I was hypoglycemic. And every night I would yell out of myself for the CEO and tell them that I need my sugar checked. I need my sugar checked every night. Um, you know, if you're pre-diabetic or diabetic, you know how you feel when, you're, when your sugar drops, you feel weak, you want to lay down. It's a really physical feeling. You can feel it. And uh, every night I would ask them, please, to where I had to get belligerent, to where I had to make a fuss in order for just anybody to hear me. And I tell that story just because the average person, even the people that are advocating on behalf of justice-involved individuals, if you have not been in those situations, you do not know how those four walls feel how it feels not to be able to help yourself, what you would do to just get your voice to somebody that will advocate for you. And that, that, that feeling, it, it can be faked. No matter how well-intentioned someone else is, you cannot know really how it feels unless you go through it. And so that's, that's one, of the, one of the reasons why uh, a group like Expo needs to exist. And then when we do that and we stand on what's right and we create good examples uh, of people who have lived through the justice system and are good impacts on their community, we, we change the narrative on what it is to be a, a formerly incarcerated person. And that's much needed in society. Society doesn't need another group of people that feels left out, that feels written off. That's the last thing we need right now. What we need is to come together on things that, that bring us together, like our communities, like making the life better for our children. And that's where connecting with other groups like MCU and different other groups that advocate for people come into play. Because we are not our mistakes. And every single day is another chance to turn your life around. People that were once bad can be good. People that were once good can slip up and end up behind those bars. And also, people, some people that were good <laughs> end up in prison and, and falsely convicted. So it's always, you know, up to the people to make sure that we hold to the integrity of justice, which is supposed to be blind. So that's why it's important that ex-incarcerated people organizing exists, and that's why it's important that we're supported by people like MCU. Okay, great. That's that's beautifully stated. If someone is uh, uh, has been justice involved, um, how can they connect with you? How can they become part of this um, and and be part of that that larger movement? You can always get into contact with Expo at MCU Expo at mcustlouisstlouis.com via email. You can get in contact with us on Facebook 
at Expo St. Louis. And you can also text Expo to 31996. Uh, we're definitely on the lookout for organizers and supporters. And you can also donate as well and uh, assist us monetarily. Okay, great. And is there anything else you wanted to say about this issue before we wrap up our program today? I just want to point out the imagery, the significance of the imagery of those detainees literally having to break a barrier between them and the outside world just to be seen and to be heard. They could have, if it was a revolt, so to speak, they could have revolted. They could have, I don't know, burned stuff inside the prison. They didn't have to break those windows. They didn't even have any, any, any clothing, barely. I know the wind, <laughs> I know the wind was rushing through those windows. So I just want to point out to everybody, no matter, you know, if you got the story or not, that those detainees broke that barrier specifically to get your attention. And now the wood is back up. The, the, the barrier is back closed and they're out of sight, out of mind. And now it's up to us to determine what gets done next. They're depending on us. That's all I got to say. Okay, great. So thank you, Latrell Stanton, an organizer with Expo, Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing here in St. Louis. Um, to learn more about MCU, go to the Metropolitan Congregations United website at mcustlewis.org. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and we thank you for listening. 